Today we'll be discussing the opioid crisis and the television show Dope Sick. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. Doja, and this is the doctor of laughs not a real doctor ali hassan every episode i pick a topic for ali from comedy and entertainment and i question him about it then ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic today we'll be discussing the opioid crisis and we'll also be discussing the television show that talks about the opioid crisis dope sick We'll be doing things a bit different today, just we, we kind of went through how we might format it. So what we'll do is we'll start off the show doing a bit of the medical background and a lot of the history of the opioid crisis, and then we'll talk about Dope Sick afterwards. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Are you asking for my permission? I do want to ask you about your own experience as a medical doctor, which you claim to be Allegedly, one yeah. of. Allegedly, I just want to ask how it, because, you know, we're going to get to it, but there is talk of uh, opioid for, for, for children in, in this uh, in this series, and that made it even, you know, more compelling a, a chat to have with you about this, that where, you know, sure. how, we, why we, 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 why why we, we do that at the end. So after we talk about Dope Sick, we can kind of, you can ask whatever questions at the end. Yeah, man, I'm hip to your beat. Okay. I'm hip to your groove. Speaking of sick, <laughs> not from Dope, you sound a bit sick. Yeah, I was I was trying some of the opioids mm, for the yeah. show. I suffer from my art. Not no, not a good joke. Not, <laughs> not appropriate at all. No, dude. I yeah, I'm not dope sick. I am uh, what's called COVID sick. All the kids are doing it. <laughs> I recommend it if you can find it. But no, I at some level it just feels like it was only a matter of time. But you know, as I uh, I had heard this months ago, a, a doctor friend of a friend had said there is just no value in trying to investigate who was mm -hmm, the person mm -hmm. that gave you code. There's just know. no value in it. Like, what is it? We'll never know. And it's, But man, is it tough to squash that part of your brain. You're just looking at a lot of people with suspicion. And at the end of the day, look, I've narrowed down the list and I'm, I printed up pictures of them and I'm pricking, you know, dolls of their mm -hmm. bodies. One of them is my 10-year-old son. So that's weird. <clears throat> yeah. They're being shunned by the neighborhood, I guess. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I mean, I I don't know, man. I, I went to Moncton, New Brunswick, and uh, could have been in the plane, Moncton. I know one of the comedians actually had COVID, and he was like, you guys should get tested. I tested that day where he tested positive. I tested negative. Four days later, I was still negative. But in that time, my son had gotten COVID, so I don't know. Mm. Anyway, it's uh, it's leveling our family in a, in a pretty mm. significant way, but I, I feel very lucky that I didn't have too many things to do outside of the house during this period. I am not going to be in a Christmas movie. Oh. The character of Phil in Chasing Christmas will be played by somebody other so than you had to, you had to cancel that. Have to or that. whatever they canceled. Cancel yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it was going to be canceled anyway, but what they do is the day before you get on set, you have to take a COVID test. I just took the test three days before just to be like, listen... I'm not going to be okay in three days. So here's the test. And it's probably best if you start looking for a replacement now rather than scrambling. The day okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'm considerate like yeah, that, you that's know? Good. That's good. Well, it's yeah. not good at all, actually. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying that. So, so no. yeah, I mean, well, that's too bad that your family it. is all sick. Oh, by the way, we, as you guys kind of know, we record this remotely. So very little chance of me getting infected from you. I will not be the guy. That's there may be a guy, there may be a guy or a gal. Yeah, well, but I won't yes. be that guy or gal. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope you guys are, are feeling better, you guys being your family. And well, why don't we just get started with the show? No, well, the, no. Okay. We, we'll get started. And I will show I will say this that I've always I've always wondered, Asif, how do you find the time to watch and listen to so much? Mm -hmm. I feel so behind on all these shows. And I found out the secret. Get COVID. You get COVID, and all of a sudden you start catching up to Asif You've Doja's regimen of uh, 
TV watching. Yeah, I mean, it really helped me with a bunch of things. Last night, I also, we're going to start talking about Dope Sick, but upon your recommendation, I also watched half of another, I guess it's a documentary. Mm-hmm. It's a proper documentary, not not like Dope Sick, which feels like mm-hmm. a documentary, but it's called Crime of the Century. That's right. I yeah. Believe, right? We'll, we'll talk a yeah. bit about so that. That's the first part about that. As well. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a good that's a good transition because that kind of is a documentary by Alex Gibney. He made Bad Blood, which is about the Theranos case and Elizabeth Holmes. Mm-hmm. He made one on Scientology. Excellent documentarian. And he kind of goes over the opioid crisis in detail. So yeah, that's a great transition. So let's discuss then this, the the kind of the history of opioids and their abuse. And like I said, this this documentary, it's called The Crime of the Century by Alex Gibney. It's based, there's, there's several books on that deal and look at the opioid crisis. And it's based on one of those books. We'll put the links in the show notes. And so when I first heard about this documentary, I thought, The Crime of the Century, it's like, come on, hyperbole, exaggeration. It's not. It was The Crime of the Century. <laughs> It really is. And, and you know, one of these things, now I know we're going to focus on Dope Sick, but Crime of the Century, you know, if you watch it after Dope Sick, it really supports mm-hmm, what you mm-hmm. just watched in such an incredible way. And I felt like every second or third line was of critical importance. Exactly. It's very, very dense. I rewound a, lo- a bunch exactly. of times to be like, I got to hear that again. And right out of the gate, there are these facts that you're given. And I think those facts lend themselves well to the beginning of this discussion. It's facts such as it is, you know, cost- America, you know, trillions of dollars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It has made, you know, Purdue Pharma in particular, opioid ha- have made them billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Facts like every 25 minutes, a child is born with opioid withdrawal mm-hmm. symptoms, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is like, as you go through that first three minutes of crime of the century, you, if you didn't have an idea beforehand, you certainly get a very, very compelling take on what this is all about and mm-hmm. how pervasive and awful Exactly. It is. And, you know, this documentary was filmed a couple of years ago. Those, those, some of it takes place, you can tell, during the pandemic. You can always tell because there's police raids and everybody's wearing a mask, right? So, you know, you can, you can say yeah. it's 2020 and after. But at the time the documentary was filmed, 500,000 Americans had died from, from opioids. And we have sim- similar numbers in Canada as well, uh, comparatively speaking. So, you know, opium was, you know, as soon as it was discovered, and it's kind of the resin of this poppy plant, they go through in this in Crime of the Century how they kind of harvest the opium. You scratch the outside of the, of the opium plant, mm-hmm. and then you get this resin. And really, by 1839, it was the world's most traded commodity. And of course, people saw money in this. And then we had companies, which we know about now, like Bayer, who makes aspirin, right? They were making heroin and, and and marketing heroin and Merck was making morphine. And then eventually kind of opioids became regulated when the US government made heroin illegal. And then then you you can't not talk about the opioid crisis without talking about the Sackler family. And again, you know what? I knew so little about these guys before I watched the documentary in Dope Sick. And and that is by design. They tried to, as you see, you know, stay out of the limelight and push yeah. other people forward. Because their yeah. company, you know, people think it's uh, Purdue Pharma, which is not Purdue Chicken. And that, that's a joke that comes up in Dope Sick. Because I, I think the U.S. Attorney General actually thought that they were going after Purdue Chicken. But it wasn't. It was Purdue Pharma. I think that's a true story. So anyway, yeah. So. The Sackler family, they're they're basically known as philanthropists. They're known as, you know, donating to art museums. There's wings of art museums that were named after them. A lot of them has been removed because of a lot of the attention that the opioid crisis has brought to them. They were a privately held company and they just made a lot of money. So the kind of the patriarch was Arthur Sackler. He was the co-owner of what was called Purdue Frederick back in the earlier part of the 20th century. And he was a pioneer in the marketing of pharmaceuticals. And he- well, that's it. So there's two things that he did. He oh, he he bought this small mm-hmm. company, Purdue Frederick, and he also bought a an advertising right, company. Exactly. And he was the first person to kind right? of combine this, this those is, this things. This is pioneering exactly. work. Combine advertising, a certain type of advertising, aka 
lying not always lying but you know it, it exaggeration and, and and manipulating yeah. manipulating certain people's words you know it's the it's the old you know three out of four dentists yeah agree yeah, he was the guy who pioneered that and basically i mean the short story is he had doctors lie and and, and stump for pharmaceutical sales that he was he was involved with and that his company was involved with so the, the drugs they were making back then were like librium and valium which are used for anxiety valiums diazepam so and so he kind of again as you're saying pioneered this whole kind of combination of advertising and pharmaceuticals which had never really been done before so that that company was was worth a huge amount of money when he died and then it kind of went to all of his heirs and then they're the ones who continued so the whole idea of oxycontin and and opioids that didn't even exist when arthur sackler was alive oh so the morphine which was ms contin Mm-hmm. Right, that was not under the patriarch no, no. that he, came he, from yeah, his exactly. sons. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. So then, and there's a great timeline, kind of looking at the opioid crisis in L magazine of all places, and they they kind of because they kind of looked at they were talking about dope sick, but they, they wanted to say you know what really happened because this show is really based in fact, and so one thing that's very interesting and it comes up in in dope sick and it's a true story. So basically. A lot of the pharmaceutical companies, and especially Purdue Pharma, would say in their marketing of MS content and then OxyContin that opioids are not addictive. And they quote a study from the New England Journal of Medicine that says less than 1% of patients with opioids became addicted. And you're like, that's a very interesting study. But the problem is no one can find this study. People just kind of reported and reported and reference other people referencing it, but it's hard to actually find the study. So this study, which based so much of the propaganda, they need a Snopes. They need a Snopes.com for yeah uh, for for this for to pharma. find this out. So basically, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, what what happens is there actually was a New England Journal piece on this, but it was a five sentence letter to the editor written by Jane Porter and oh, a Dr. Yeah. Herschel Jick, and. Basically, what they did was they looked at hospitalized patients in certain states, and they felt that in those patients who are hospitalized with pain and things like that, they thought addiction was rare. They didn't mean outpatients. They didn't mean people prescribed drugs for moderate pain, which was the whole thing that Purdue ended up doing is prescribing these these drugs for mo- moderate pain. But it was it was five it was a five sentence thing. And Herschel Jick has been interviewed afterwards, and he said, you know, I'm mortified that this was used as an excuse to do what these drug companies did but it just goes to prove that you know these companies will do anything to 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 try and 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 justify things to for their sales and this guy was it herschel jick his first name herschel jick also relatively unique in a way in this story in that he and his words and his his experience wasn't co-opted by purdue Right. Other people who said things or thought things that serve Purdue's message were immediately on Purdue's payroll or, you know, directly working in their building and stuff like that. So he's an interesting standout in that regard because they weren't able to pay him money to be like, yeah, you, you said this, stand by it and uh, work with us that he wasn't. Right. So uh, exactly. So he was kind of removed for this and found out about this later, but you're right. So as Purdue in the 90s is trying to, they already have MS content. They're trying to bring OxyContin to the market. Can I just add one thing as the layperson, huh? Layperson Joe speaking over here. I always wondered about why it's OxyContin, OxyCodone. Are they two different things? The content, you know, MS content was, the content is from the word continuum. Exactly. Right. And it is because you continually get a release of this medication for whatever it is. I think it was a 12 hour period. I don't know about with the morphine, but MS. So the content is, you know, the MS stands for, I guess, morphine something and then content means exactly. continuum. So that's very important. So this is, this is why they decide. So they decided to market it like this. It's not a fast acting opioid, it's a slow release opioid over, say, 12 hours or so. And they marketed. It, it like this and and so that and they hired people as you're saying to kind of stump for them and so there was this person david haddocks who 
coined this term pseudo addiction, which is the thought that even if if people are on high dose opioids and they look like they're addicted, that's not really addicted. Just their pain is so bad. You have to increase the dose that has since been debunked, but this guy came up with this and then Purdue brought him into the fold to help stump mm-hmm. for them. Okay. So you can see these academics who are now being paid, but then the worst part was an FDA examiner named Curtis Wright in, in 1997, he oversaw the approval of Oxycontin in, in America. And the key is, there was a line that was written in this FDA approval. And it basically said, to paraphrase, the continued release of OxyContin, the slow release of OxyContin may lead to less addiction. And that was Mm -hmm. a a line that was approved by the FDA. And okay, so two two critical things. Curtis Wright is a very critical figure in all of this, right? The fact that he was brought in, co-opted or whatever the right term is, uh, is brought in to, he was later hired by Purdue to yeah, work a at year, Purdue. Like a year after the FDA, after you left the FDA and after this was approved. Yeah. And then the other thing is this, this idea of doesn't cause addiction, but then somehow that was narrowed down to a number less than 1%. Mm-hmm. How did that so that so, so they were combining two things, right? They were combining it's less addictive and the less than 1% was from that art, that letter in the New England Journal of Medicine. So okay. this was their pro- this was the kind of propaganda by 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 pharma. And so then they start this big publicity campaign to market oxycontin saying that a less than 1% of people will be addicted, b that the continued or the sustained release formulation of it will reduce addiction and then they start stumping and they start going to meet with doctors and try and do and try and do this they they have lots of conferences and CME continuing medical education activities for physicians where they basically are saying you know pain is the fifth vital sign right mm-hmm. you know we have heart rate temperature blood pressure respiratory rate but also add in pain and a lot of us uh, we could talk about this later in medical school, learn about the subjective pain scale, like scale of one to 10. And for people who maybe can't see or can't read or for little kids, you have like a happy face when you have no pain and then a frowny face, you know, maybe slightly red and angry at, at, at the 10 out of 10 pain. And mm-hmm. that pain scale, by the way, designed by Purdue yeah. itself, yeah. not a, not a uh, generic pain scale. That's right. By a, Medical the other key thing that they designed. did when they applied for the FDA is they wanted it approved for moderate pain, not just severe pain. So for severe pain is like cancer type pain or things like that, sure. which prescribing opioids is a reasonable thing. I mean, this is excruciating pain for these people, but they want it for moderate pain. So back pain, headache, things like that, musculoskeletal pain. And then yeah. and they, so you went from people on in like palliative yes. care, acute chronic pain to teenagers with a headache. I think something to that effect is said in crime of the century, yes. like uh, moderate pain. Yeah, sure. Well, take yeah. a take an oxy, you know, you're 60. And, and then so that's what happened then is 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 this was this was marketed again. And lots of people are, were complicit in this pharmaceutical companies, the drug reps, pharmacists and physicians were all kind of complicit in this. I will say that when it comes to the drug reps, you know, these are, I think, the most innocent of all of them. These are salespeople, right? Any ding dong. I could be a, a pharma sales rep. This is not a medical job. This is a sales job. As long as you know how to sell, you can pick up some basic stuff. And I say that with all due respect to sales reps, but I know I have friends who are sales reps. They weren't all with a, a very few of them actually had a medical uh, training mm-hmm. background. Most of them didn't or didn't need it. And if they were ready to sell and be a, you know, a shark and be aggressive, and fight through the the obstacles of, you know, doctor crustiness, which sometimes exists. Awesome, Doja. The, you know, you, you just, uh, if you have some traits, you're, you're a salesperson. So they're pushing it on the doctors. And then the doctors, you know, they're looking at these facts less than 1% because of the continued yeah. release and the doctor and, and the FDA, who doctors obviously put a lot of trust in. Have have signed off on this, so you go. Okay, well, what am I fighting? For yeah, here? I mean, I guess so. I, I think there's a general sliminess for all of this, and and well, you know, it's it's. It, I think the point is, as time went on, so now we're into the early 2000s. Drug and op- opioid overdose and drug related deaths begin to rise, and the people, the amount of people, according to the FDA, using OxyContin from not for non medical purposes increased from 400,000 in 1999 to 2.8 million in 2003. 
So that's an insane amount. And so this is all profit for Purdue Pharma. And again, they're, they're marketing this, but then you see the problems that begin to happen because OxyContin is slow release. And we talked about this with Sydney McElroy when she was on our, our show, but all you have to do is take the OxyContin, put it in your mouth and wet it and rub off, rub off on your sleeve, the, the coating, and then you're able to crush it and snort it. Or you know, injected. There's many ways to to to, sure. to get into. And now system. you're getting 12 hours worth of medication in, in, one in yeah. seconds. And of course, because of this idea of pseudo addiction, you know, producing. No, if you see someone who looks like they're addicted, keep giving them more and more medicine, and they end up. It's like it was designed by a five year old. When you look at when you course. listen to the logic of pseudo addiction, it's and they keep increasing the pill size from 20, 40, 60, 80 up to 160 milligrams which are insane doses. And then yeah. you see more and more, more deaths occur over time. And, and eventually it was, it, what happened was various states in the U S especially in Appalachia, which as we talked about with Sydney were very hard hit, began pursuing criminal charges against the company. Specifically what they were implying is that the, people in the company knew it was making people addicted and knew it was causing deaths and yet still continued to market it aggressively. And basically there were a, a bunch of, of lawsuits. One was in May 2007, where three of its executives pled guilty to misdemeanor charges and the company had to pay $635 million. This that plea agreement and that that discussion and what went on with that is forms the basis of dope sick, which we'll which we'll talk about in a, in a few minutes. Sure. Since you brought it up, we should mention also. I think it's it's a it's a DA for West Virginia brings this mm-hmm. up in Crime of the mm-hmm. Century that six hundred and thirty million might sound like a lot of money mm-hmm. to be penalized, but when you're making eight billion mm-hmm. in profit right. or whatever it's, it was, yeah. you know, somewhere between six and eight billion in profit. He goes, I consider this to be a minuscule amount when you're making annual profits of that many billions. Exactly. And it's just a slap on the wrist. And actually, it doesn't stop anything. Oh, so you mean we can pay our way to get back into this game again? And sure enough, they didn't change anything. And that fine, as inconceivably high as $630 is to the layperson, it affected Mm -hmm. nothing. They changed absolutely nothing. In exactly. Behavior. Things got worse. And so they continued to be pursued by lawsuits from various states. And eventually, you guys may have heard of this, basically last year and, and in, in 2020, after a very long federal investigation, Purdue Pharma agreed to plead guilty to criminal charges in the marketing of OxyContin and of defrauding federal health agencies and paying illegal kickbacks to physicians. So let's just take a step back to talk about what those kickbacks look like. Essentially, these are what are called pill mills. And they were very prominent, especially in Florida. And we always make fun of Florida for you know the Florida man memes and things like that. But what would happen There's is- too much to make. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So what would happen is they would have these pill mills. And so there would be a doctor there basically just writing prescriptions, you know, doing a cursory examination, just writing prescriptions. And, and everybody who's addicted knows you just go there and then there'd just be lineups at the door all day, just prescription after prescription after prescription. They would make money. Then there'd be pharmacies who are participating in, in you know, prescribing and, and giving out ridiculous doses and amounts of, of OxyContin. And of course, the physicians for writing more and more prescriptions would get kickbacks from the pharma company. So cash, uh, trips, you know, dinners at expensive restaurants and things like that. And some of these companies had spreadsheets exactly with, with the doctor's name and the amount they prescribe and how much money they're going to give them for doing that extra. You know, it, it, so basically the Purdue farmer was kind of found that kind of guilty or pled guilty for these criminal charges. Kind of guilty. Sorry, they pled guilty uh, for these criminal charges and faced penalties of $8.3 billion, which was the largest ever imposed on a pharmaceutical manufacturer. The Sackler family themselves had to pay $225 million in civil penalties, which is still a fraction because the net worth of the family is $13 billion. So it's not still not a huge amount. But then you might have heard there was kind of a bit of back and forth between the courts. And then recently in September, the company made a plan that they proposed, kind of a counter, not offer, but like this was their, the agreement that they they wanted approval of, where it was a $4.5 million plan that would dissolve the company 
restructure it into a public benefit corporation that would be focused on addressing the opioid crisis and repaying individuals and families who are harmed by it. And then, and then it will be this settlement will be financed from the Sackler family, basically. But the part of it was that the Sacklers would not have any exposure to, to civil litigation over the opioid addiction. But that settlement was just overturned in December. And there's some controversy of, of whether they actually can be released from civil liability or not. So that's still going through in the courts, mm. but the company is definitely in, in extreme dire situations because of, of all the court cases. And the family is basically ruined, which is certainly what they deserve. I mean, Asif, to say that family is ruined is uh, almost, you know, it doesn't come close to cutting. Like what we haven't touched on is how actual families were actually ruined. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Like because of oxygen. I mean, the states of Maine and West Virginia and Kentucky, there's states that were just, you know, populations of people just mm-hmm. decimated. And I, I think these both this documentary and this show, Dope Sick, uh, Dope Sick the show and Crime of the Century, both show that as in the most compelling way possible, you know, with parents holding pictures of their kids, one pill, one overdose, this was my son, you know, this was my daughter, mm-hmm. this was this person, this was, and all the doctors are constantly like, these are hardworking people, mm-hmm. you know, these are salt of the earth, hardworking people, and they deserve better than this. And Sackler didn't care mm-hmm. at all. They, honestly, they're they're portrayed as not having, not 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 being able to show any empathy. And I mean, what do you, what do you say to it? I mean, I, I don't think that they do, you know, in the end money was the, was the ultimate thing, ultimate thing for them. Well, it's interesting because where they finally would pay attention is when some pharmacy, you're talking about pill mills, the opposite was certain pharmacies that were like, we're not going to stock Oxycontin for fear of robbery. We've been robbed so many Mm -hmm. times because people are desperate for Oxycontin, selling it on the black market. You know, in certain states, 70% of crimes were oxy-related, right? And then Purdue, their drug reps would threaten to sue those pharmacies for not if they didn't carry OxyContin. It was was so, uh, such, anyway, it was was crazy. And like I said, I do think, you know, everybody has some some responsibility to this. And I'll I'll use the example of fentanyl as I just talk about some, some other people who have responsibility. So... As Dr. Malkavar talked about a couple episodes ago on our podcast, OxyContin, they've kind of changed the way it comes. So it's come, she compared it to like a Skittle, right? So you can't crush it anymore. And so there are things that Purdue has done. It really is too little, too late, but to kind of curb the ability to crush that and and, and use it's it. Been, it's been 25 years, man. <laughs> it's so crazy. So, of course, now we talk about fentanyl and fentanyl deaths, which kind of increased. And, more, you know, fentanyl is 100 times more powerful than morphine. And companies, again, in the 2000s were looking for ways to now market fentanyl. And this documentary, Crime of the Century, also talks about this company, Insist Therapeutics, which was started by this guy, John Kapoor, originally from India, immigrated to the US and started this company. And they also started getting these pain clinics involved. A lot of these pain clinics that they talk about which were marketing and selling this fentanyl, it was a sublingual. So it's like a spray you spray underneath your tongue. So really quick Mm -hmm. absorption. These are pain clinics. They were cash only, a lot of these pain clinics. There was menus. So they give you like a, a menu, like a laminated menu, and you just kind of check off what you want. I mean, this is a doctor's office, but this is what's going on. And well, as you mentioned, he did, Kapoor did come from India. And if there is a country out there that has no regard for the layperson. <laughs> and is it uh, just scamming people? I know. It, <laughs> it, it is your I India. Know, it's, it's your precious Sounds like India. we're being racist, but listen, we're both South Asian. My family's from India. So I hopefully we can say that. Again, so what's really interesting in this is this, when they talk about incest therapeutics in the documentary, they talk about, they have actually one of their drug reps who moved up the ranks and just what they would do to get the doctors on board, the pharmacists on board, and the insurance companies on board. Insurance companies were never really on board with any of this, but they would actually have people who worked at the pharmaceutical company who would intervene on behalf of doctors to negotiate with the pharmaceutical company to to the insurance company to make sure it was covered for each of the people and just the amount of lies. The other really interesting thing, which I, I didn't realize, is that in the US, there are drug distributors. So there's the pharmaceutical manufacturer 
and then there's the pharmacy. But in between is a drug distributor who distributes in bulk quantities to all the pharmacies in various parts of the U.S. And there's about three big drug distributors. One of them, for example, is Cardinal Health in the U.S. So they would have seen these drug distributors, these huge orders, or you know, which are just crazy orders of magnitude in terms of, of oxy content sales, fentanyl cells, and things like that. Should be yeah, red. They flags. could have easily put a stop to this, reported to the FDA, but they didn't. Again, because money is 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 so so paramount for all these different different people. So, like I said, everybody I think is complicit. And again, incest therapeutics, thankfully, also <laughs> it was the subject of many lawsuits and is is in dire circumstances as well, which which they deserve. But I mean, when you name your company Incest Pharmaceuticals, that's a bad I sign, isn't it? S Y S. It's actually yeah. my. I mean, sounds a lot like ISIS. I'm just going to throw that out there too. A lot of red flags. So you know, I, I think that's kind of the big overview. And of course, we're we're totally rushing over so many of the details of this. But maybe now is a good time to kind of segue into Dopesick and talk about how that, that show depicts the opioid crisis. Your wish is my command, sir. Okay, Ali, so I wanted to talk to you a bit about Dopesick, get your thoughts on it. It's based on a nonfiction book written by Beth Macy called Dopesick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug company that addicted America. Like I said, there's there's quite a few books on the opioid crisis that are out there. Empire of Pain is another one. So this is a limited series. It's on Hulu in Canada. You can get it on Disney Plus. And yeah, which is hilarious. I did not know Disney <laughs> Plus was carrying things like the, I you don't you can't imagine what I thought I was going to watch when you told me it was on Disney. I was like, what well, the world? I thought I was going to sit with together. my sons. Yeah, yeah exactly. Nothing to do, not not fun for the whole family viewing, but an absolute acting masterclass. Absolutely. I would watch an episode and I couldn't wait Uh, to watch it. I watched the first one and then I texted you, you got to watch the show. You got to watch the whole thing. It is so well done. And, and, uh, you know, I know people are like, well, it seems a bit depressing and it's a bit down, but if you are not aware of these stories, I don't like you could, you can watch the documentary. We talked about crime in the century. You could read one of those books or you, or you can watch dope sick or do all of those things. But I suggest you one of those things because mm-hmm. to not be aware of, of this and the, as you said, the impact it has on people. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, this, this, show I think is 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 great. So Macy was kind of like looking around Hollywood and wanted to make this into like either a movie, a TV series or something like that. And Danny Strong is the producer and kind of showrunner. He wrote basically every episode of the show. And he wrote, I don't know if you remember Game Change and Recount. These were these kind of movies about kind of politics in the US and in the 2000s. He also wrote the last two Hunger Games movies. So so it's an eight episode series. It's just a mini series. There is no not going to be a second season. And that's it because you see the story is relatively self-contained. The interesting thing about this series, and this is going to be potentially triggering to some people or offensive, but I will tell you that, you know, and I've spoken to you about this before, I have my own preconceived notions and, and a little bit of struggle to find some level of empathy that I should have with the, you know, victims of the opioid epidemic. And the reason for that is because... You know, when I grew up and I was really big into rap music, as people who've listened to this show would know, a lot of my favorite albums are rap albums. And I was very, very much into hip hop culture and and, and urban culture. And, you know, the crack epidemic did not get a lot of attention, you know, and there were people Mm -hmm. dying in the streets and they were also sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of people, of human beings. And so when the opioid epidemic became a thing, I was very much like, oh, as soon as white people start dying, the narrative shifts to our sons, our daughters, our families are dying. And I was very initially, you know, hesitant to sort of like open my heart to this thing. And over time that has changed. And if you're anything like I was, the picture that you 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 get very clearly in front of your in front of your mind is that this is not about white entitlement or white privilege mm-hmm. in any way. I mean, <laughs> on the Sackler end, maybe. 
But this is the poorest of the poor of Americans. These are hard worker, bluest of the blue collar workers who are originally getting most addicted in those, you know, as they're called podunk towns, one industry towns. You know, these are people with very, very hard backbreaking jobs. And they start taking this at the encouragement of their doctors. They start taking Oxycontin. And despite, you know, they're truly the most innocent victims in this story. Are the people mm -hmm. who trusted their medical professionals to take these painkillers and the, the, these opioids? And so I, I think my mind is fully and and I you know I really remembered. <laughs> it's weird to say this, but I was I really was thinking about Donald Trump and who he really spoke to in America, and he spoke mm -hmm. to for the first time poor whites. Mm -hmm. Right. No, no president mm -hmm. had talked mm -hmm. to poor whites directly the way Trump, ironically, because of how wealthy he is, he connected with the poorest of the poor. And this is those people. They have been mm -hmm. neglected. And you see what the fight is, what type of fight is required just to get some recognition. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares yeah. about people in West exactly. Virginia and Kentucky. And these are people are like we're. We go to work every day to help this country's economy. Mm -hmm. Like we're literally at yeah. the ground. Anyway, yeah. it was, I, I, I liked it from that perspective. It was a, a shift in my mind, you know, even though I've read many articles about the Sackler family and, and I know a fair amount about the epidemic, if not the technical details where I knew a lot, but just the way they positioned this story was unbelievably compelling and, 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 you know, yields a lot more empathy than I, I had for the subject. Well, let me just say one thing. There's a good NPR article which talks about Dope Sick and the true story behind it. And it does, in this article, have a section where they actually talk about the differences and how race kind of plays a role. And so the short story is, you know, there have been massive deaths from opioids and heroin for a very long time. Like, you know, the idea of dope in the black community and people of color in the U.S. has been around for a very long time. The problem is it was dealt with with punitive criminal yeah. interventions, not trying to treat addiction. That is the problem. And that has been an ongoing problem. And of course, I mean, I don't like, that's a whole other topic that other people have talked very extensively about in terms of the mass incarceration of African-American individuals in the US. But this is what it was, it was just regarded as a criminal activity. But and black Americans, of course, face higher rates of incarceration and are denied access to healthcare for something like the treatment of addiction, right? right. They're just kind of thrown in jail and forgotten about. And an interesting during the pandemic, overdose deaths have surged amongst people of color from o opioid deaths. During the pandemic so, in particular. During the pandemic. So I think it's something that's that's overlooked. And, you know, I don't, just to be honest, I don't think you and I have the expertise to go into into, into further detail Not about yet. this. But, but, but maybe it's something to talk about in a future episode as well. But I think it's definitely something to be pointed out. And 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 again, to be to be fair, it, it, they don't talk about the impact on people of color very much in the show. The main character, who's a person of color, is played by Rosario Dawson, but she plays a DA agent in the show. That's actually a fictional character. I don't know if you knew that that Ali. So they they did a very interesting thing in this show where they made some characters fictional and some characters are taken exactly from real life and they interact with each other, mm -hmm. which is a very a bizarre way of looking at it. So Rosario Dawson was kind of combined a bunch of, of people in the DEA and, and her storyline is her just trying to figure out from a criminal element what was going on. Can she bring charges against Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and the kind of roadblocks she encounters with that, especially with regards to the FDA and, and Purdue Pharma mm -hmm. itself? You know, it's not actually that strange because when you're trying to create the best story possible, sometimes you need some characters yeah. to light a fire and to make sense to a viewer, you know, like, oh, some there has to be some inciting incident or some inciting character who does something. So sometimes those are created and, and, and it makes sense. But I did feel after I... This is what I'll recommend. I'll recommend you watch Dope Sick first and Crime of the Century second, and you will see how many characters are real and the ones that mm -hmm. aren't real, like my, 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 Michael Keaton's own, you know, Dr. Phoenix. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because in the end, there were Dr. Phoenixes all across the country. One of the sales reps in Crime of the Century says he walked into a doctor's office and saw him wiping his nose and, and, and brushing mm -hmm. Oxycontin off his desk. He had just snorted it himself, right? So those people mm -hmm. did exist, if not in that name in that city. I mean, exactly, yeah. exactly. And Michael Keaton is. I mean, don't we always forget what a good actor Man, he is? Top he ten, is top so. ten. Yeah, I would say highly underrated. 
But look, as an actor myself, as a fan of acting, that's my first thing. I always look at the acting. Flawless, man. Flawless performances. Mm -hmm. Peter Sarsgaard as well. All of them. I didn't see in these, these, these younger performers who are going through incredible pain and trauma, flawless performance after flawless performance. And if you saw something that was like not believable, please do tell me. But I was That's right. over and yeah. over impressed. So yeah, I, Michael Keaton is is amazing. He won the Golden Globe for this, totally deserved. So Peter Sarsgaard and John Hugenaker, they play these real life U.S. attorneys, Rick Mountcastle and Randy Ramsayer, who eventually brought the suit that we were talking about earlier on to the company. And that was a long road too. And the, yeah, such a long road of working and things, again, I won't ruin the story for you, but things get shot down at many levels and, and compromises have to be reached. And the, the uh, interesting thing about these guys is they're just so, they have these morals and ethics and they just kind of stick to them all the way through. I was really impressed by Peter Sarsgaard. Not that I wasn't impressed by John Hugenager, but I'm not familiar with his work before this. But Peter Sarsgaard, he comes off as a certain character in his movies that he's been in. This Peter Sarsgaard, by the way, married to uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Mm -hmm. And I just forgot it was him in this in, sure. this in this role. Like, you know, it's just so well done. So they're great. We talked about Rosario Dawson. Then there's another thread that they follow is is the 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 individual family and the effects of it. And there's a character named Betsy who's played by Caitlin Dever. And just her battle with opioids. Her parents are played by Mayor Winningham, who I didn't recognize. She's been in, in many things. She was actually in a lot of the Brat Pack movies early in the 80s. Totally didn't recognize her. And her father's played by Ray McKinnon. And you think he's just a guy they found, you know, in Appalachia yeah. who happens totally. to play. It's it's so authentic. Yeah. And that story is really, I mean, it's, it's devastating in terms of seeing an individual who you obviously come to care for throughout the series. Mm -hmm. And you can't forget the despicable Sackler family themselves. Those performances are amazing. <sighs> It's it's crazy. And so Michael Stuhlbarg, who I also am not really aware of before this, plays the Richard Sackler, who is the main Sackler family member who was the president at the time or becomes, becomes the president. Yeah. You see what happens in the show. And, and, and spearheads the aggressive marketing of OxyContin. In real life, Richard Sackler is a bit of a enigma. Not a lot about him. Very private. And so, and so I'm not sure this is exactly how he acts, but it certainly captures the essence of probably what somebody has to be like mm. in order to have inflicted this oh, upon the world. Completely incapable of compassion. Yeah. Whatever Richard Sackler, the real human being acted like, he's incapable of compassion, extremely greedy and, and profit you know, oriented above all else. And this actor captured it so so well so you can see there's like there's the addiction drama there's the criminal investigative thing like a law and order type thing with the attorneys pursuing rosario dawson's character pursuing and then there's the whole succession vibe of the sackler family them having these meetings about shares and who gets the shares and things like that so it combines all these and you don't think it's going to work i was i was honestly skeptical when i first started watching it. i'm like i don't i don't know how this is going to go it's just so great well i'm going to pull back the curtain on uh, asif doja to uh, many of our listeners who will be shocked and possibly dismayed with him. He has not watched Ozark. Of all the things you've watched, you have not added Ozark, which is insane. But I'm going to say that if you love Ozark, if you're a fan of Ozark, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap, mm. particularly with this last season in this dope sick story. And so, you know, it, it, there's very, there's definitely much more of that, you know, admin governmental level stuff happening in dope sick. But I think for me, it was the perfect thing to watch just weeks after finishing this, this part of this last season of Ozark. So Ali, just for this final part of this episode, you said you want to ask me some yeah, you don't tell me direct questions. You about don't this? tell me that I want to ask you. I tell you oh, that sorry. I want to ask I'm you, right? Enough with the bossing around. I do want to ask you. You know, uh, again, you, you don't want to give away too much because this was a real shocker, but they did start talking about, I'm, hopefully this is not a spoiler, but they did start talking about 
you know, Richard Sackler at one point asks one of his underlings, how is Oxycontin for children coming along? And they're like, yeah, we're still mm -hmm. developing it, right? It doesn't take a huge storyline, but it did occur to me like, oh my God, I, I didn't even consider that. But of course, in their greed, the Sacklers leave no human being unturned, regardless of age or status. They'll mm -hmm. take money from anybody. They'll take money from a crying baby is the saying and the actual practice, I think, here. So obviously that translates, or in my mind, that translated in my conversation with you as a pediatric neurologist, where does, where do opioids come into your life? Do they come into your life? Mm -hmm. Have they been asked for by parents for their children? Have you ever prescribed them? Is this something you need to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. So listen, when I go back to med school, I think about learning things like that pain scale and thing like, things like that. Have you that. been kicked and out of your practice? You need to go back to med school? What are you talking about? No, I think thinking back, thinking to med school, back, thinking, get back it. thinking back Ooh, to med school. Phew. Yeah, when I went back to med school in remediation, <laughs> no, when I was thinking back to med school, I was thinking about you know learning about the pain scale for sure. I'm sure because man, I went to med school just again so everybody's clear in the timeline from '96 to 2000. This is when OxyContin was taking off, mm, right? I hope you have an alibi, uh, sir. Exactly. So I, I learned about the pain scale. I'm sure I went to some lunches every day when I did my internal medicine rotation. There was a every day there was a hot lunch sponsored by a different drug company. I didn't even pay attention to which drug company it was, but I'm sure one of them was Purdue and marketing OxyContin. So we definitely heard about the pain scale. I was definitely told. I know I've been told this by many people up until I would say even 10 years ago that no, if, if, if you have true pain, you can keep on going up with opioids. I, I was told that. Not for my own patients. I'll explain why. I don't really prescribe them. So I remember this occurring in med school, but the, probably the last time I prescribed something was maybe in my first few years of residency of someone like in, working in the eMERGE on one of my rotations and someone broke a leg. So before I was doing neurology, just doing general pediatrics, you know, you prescribe them maybe some Percocets or something like that. that that's the last time I can actually remember prescribing something like that, maybe for an older teenager. Mm. But in general, we don't because I went into neurology. So I guess there are some neurologists who specialize in pain medicine. The pain medicine, you can go through different ways to get into that. You can be neuro a neurologist, a family doctor, a palliative care physician, an anesthesiologist. They all have different ways of, of getting into pain medicine. But I didn't do a lot of rotations or get exposed to pain medicine. In neurology, the main thing that we see that's a pain problem is headache and migraine, right? And... I was just taught by very competent neurologists when I was in Toronto, especially adult neurologists and, and a headache, a pediatric headache specialists I work with saying, you don't prescribe opioids for headaches, especially for migraines. They don't work. There's no point in doing this. Now, just, to, so eat, just to jump in there, that is a specific opinion of a specific you know, mentor or, or, or teacher that you had, that is not the pervasive view in, in neurology. It is, it is now I, I would say, you know, it, it, it's both. It's, it's what I was taught and it is the pervasive view. Okay. You should not be prescribing opioids for a migraine headache. So would, uh, would and, pharma and, reps come into neurologists? Uh, would they try anyway? Like, uh, you know, in their. I, I, not in my experience. I don't remember okay. anything like that. And I think it would, that was, they, they were more targeted for musculoskeletal pain. I mean, there's other drugs there specifically for migraine. So the pharma reps are trying to, trying to sell you on those ones sure. as opposed to things like that. You see people going to the emergency room and getting prescribed opioids in the emergency room or to take home with them for migraine. That was in the past. And neurologists have been very anti-opioids, especially for migraine. So we've we tried to educate other physicians against prescribing those things for migraine because they don't work. They just lead to addiction in a lot of people. So why would you prescribe it? It's, it's not appropriate. So I'm very, I don't prescribe a lot of opioids, honestly. Like I said, maybe back in residency, I, I can't really remember the last time. I don't even know, honestly. So you can safely say in, in the last, <laughs> okay. So in the last decade, you will have probably not at all. No, I would say, yeah, almost the last 20 years, I would oh, wow. say, but let's say in the last 10 to 15 years. So I really don't do it. Now, it's different, right? Oncologists, for example, palliative care physicians, they prescribe it all the time. When you have patients with cancer pain who are dying, who are actively dying, of course you want to ease their suffering. In the ICU, when you're sedated with all the tubes in, of course they use it. Like that, that that's not unusual. And anesthesiologists, when they put you to sleep, they need to, you need to just, you need to 
if someone's having surgery, you need to control their pain and their level of awakeness, mm-hmm. you know? So, of course, you use them all the time. Uh, for something like sickle cell disease, a sickle cell crisis is excruciatingly painful. So, of course, there is a role for it. Don't get me wrong, in, pe- in pediatrics. Just not really for me in neurology. I don't, I don't often do it. But, you know, I think back and I think, like, just watching these shows and these documentaries, doing all these readings, and I am just think, like, you know, there is we the reason why I want physicians to educate themselves on it. Obviously, the average person needs to do it too. The lay person does, but because physicians were culpable in this, you know, they were culpable in prescribing it, over prescribing it. I think to myself, like that whole pain scale thing. Pain is the fifth vital sign. Did I learn that? Was it because of drug influence? Like it, it really messes with your brain. Like you think, oh, I can't be fooled by this. But I'm like, you know, we all we use a subjective pain scale every single day. And again, it is useful because when I'm seeing someone with a migraine, I want to know is it severe, moderate, mild. So you have to do that. But the fact that that may have been pushed by pharmaceutical companies and then to use opioids for moderate pain. I don't know. It, it makes me very uncomfortable. And I don't think doctors can excuse themselves. When you have members of your profession, you know, writing prescription in these pill mills, like it's not, it's, it's, you know, you, we have to take responsibility for that. And I don't want to get into too much detail about this, but you know, when you know, personally, people who have died from opioid overdoses because of addiction, you know, it really hits home. So it definitely increased my dislike of pharma way more doing all this research for this episode. I really, I mean, I just, I have so little respect for these. I know I was defending them in an old episode. We need them for for drug discovery, for these yeah. rare diseases and things like that. But I don't know. It's the whole sales aspect and the money being the bottom line. It's just really uh, disappointing. Well, and, 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 and of course, you can see why people have this distrust of doctors because some of them acted like this, yeah. you know, just in it for the money. Well, you know, this is supposed to be doctor versus comedian, but we came together on that point for sure. My my uh, <laughs> yeah. already existing dislike of pharma only increased, and I couldn't help but think about that. And I couldn't help but think about, you know, even this vaccination thing we're in, where, you know, I'm very pro-vaccine, but yeah, at some level, you're like, yeah, I get, I get your distrust. And it's, it's you know, mm-hmm. people are like, yeah, but the science, the science. But if they have examples in their mind of like where pharma has lied to them or their family or people they know in the mm-hmm. past, how do you overcome mm-hmm. that? You know, so mm-hmm. that's the bed that pharma has gotten us to lie in. Bad pharma, bad, but also very good, but also very bad. So that's our episode for today. Hopefully people found it interesting. Like I said, we kind of did things in a bit of a different fashion, but hopefully you guys like that. Ali, anything to mention or plug? Olympic break is over. Run the Burbs is back on Mm -hmm. CBC Television and CBC Gem. Did you enjoy the Olympics, by the way? Did you watch any? Yeah, I did enjoy the Olympics. It was pretty good. I just, two Olympics in a row with time zone difference is really tough. It's like, tough. you know, so I would say I'm less engaged this this year as compared to previous and less engaged than even the summer ones in Korea. So yeah, how about you guys? No, I was too busy watching shows for this podcast. Very good. By the way, another recommendation for a show, you've got to watch Peacemaker, which is- I messaged you. I said, can I watch that with my children? And you said, absolutely not. I was like, damn it. It's it's not, but it is. Again, if you think you're like this show, if you like The Boys, if you like uh, the Suicide Squad movie, which it came from, which was, I told you, one of my favorite movies last Mm -hmm. year. If you like Deadpool, then this is right up your alley. It's it's just a great, hilarious kind of break from reality. So it's been a, a bit of a Savior. So yeah, I'll let you check that out. Let me know what you think. Will do. But remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.